Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Last week we spoke on really a moving point that causes. When you come to Romans chapter 12, Romans is laid out like a great legal book. So you start in chapter 1 and 2 into chapter 3 with the problem. And the problem is this. And one of you guilty. You go to Romans chapter 12 and there is a 13 part indictment that is laid out against humanity. And then he moves just away from that for a second, Romans chapter 2. And he says, what doeth thee then thou Jew? What does it mean to be a Jew? And then he comes to Romans chapter 3 and for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the first three chapters of Romans as a general rule from a Bible point deal primarily with an indictment that all the world are sinners and because we're all sinners by birth we were sinners and by action we're sinners we're all in the consequence of death. And then in chapter 4 you've got the promise of justification Abraham and God didn't put anything in accident on the Word of God. Nothing's by action the Word of God. There's a reason Abraham was chosen and the reason why is Abraham is esteemed by Jews and by Muslims, by world over as being a friend of God, but there's something peculiar about Abraham. He lived before the law of God. He was a friend of God, and any Jew, any Gentile that knew the morality of the Scripture would say, certainly God's friend, when he died, is in the presence of God. Amen? That's what you would say. Absolutely! And it's by intentionality the Holy Spirit moved upon Paul, and Abraham is chosen as an example of justification, and he is justified without the law. Why? By faith. And it was Abraham's faith in the coming Savior as his only hope of salvation whereby Abraham is pronounced justified. And then pivoting from that chapter 4, you go to chapter 5. In chapter 5, marvelous, we have peace with God and access with the Father through Jesus Christ. You continue in chapter 5, five times, in chapter 5, five times about the free gift of God. And it concludes around verse 19 with this marvelous statement. For where sin did abound, God's grace, gift, 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 did much more abound. You ever hear someone say, well, I'm beyond God's saving grace. Maloney, you're not. You're not. So preacher, how can you say it? Well, I would agree with him. I'd agree with my... The, their, their thought or sentiment, I would agree with that about myself, that I'm beyond saving grace of God. Well, that's not what the book says. We're sent it abound, God's grace did. That's exceedingly beyond. He has more ability to sin than man has the, uh, he has more ability to save than man has the capacity to sin. And so then I've received this free gift. I come into chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And all God's people said, No way, Jose. That's a, that's a new translation there. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? No. Why? Because I've somehow eradicated my sin nature? By somehow at salvation, I have just changed and I'll never sin again? Well, you don't see that in Abraham, dear old Abraham's life. You don't see that as the mark in scriptures, but one mark that you see in the life of a believer is that we certainly, because of our position and seeing fully what Christ has done, it changes our outlook and our mindset. And we want to yield our bodies as instruments of righteousness. That's also in chapter 6. 
Then you come to chapter 7, there's a grand sensitivity to sin. Paul speaks on this. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's a, that's a token expression to the Roman form of, uh, of punishment for high crimes. They would tether you if you were committed and found guilty and you, you were committed to a sentence. They would place upon the back of a living person a body of a dead person. And you would be tethered. That would be your sentence. And of course, as the decay and, and such would pass from that corpse, it now enters your body. And, and it would cause you to have an agonizing death. And that was a sensitivity that Paul had towards the expression of his own nature. It goes on in chapter 7, I believe it is, he says, <laughs> he says, the things that I would I do not, and that which I do I would not. His sensitivity towards the things of God. Every child of God ought to be there. He's not giving an ex uh, uh, some expression of cavalier towards how he lives. He's not saying, well, you know, God saved me so I can live like a dirt dauber and be clean on Sunday morning. That's not at all what he's saying. He's not somehow saying that because I'm saved, I just have a license to do whatever I want to and I can live however and praise God. I'm going to heaven when I die and it doesn't matter at all how I live. Jesus loves me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have a grand sensitivity towards sin. And there is part of my humanness that is weak. Surely to the Lord's disciples, he says, the flesh uh, is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all know about the succumbing to temptation. But in the life of a child of God uh, that is sincere about their walk with God, there is a dedication to the things of God and in so much a sensitivity that when we transgress against the commands of God, oh, how our heart burns within us. That's where we cry out in 1 John chapter 2. And know and plead that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse of all unrighteousness. And then you come to chapter 8, and that deals with the single greatest ally you have in the Christian life. And ain't your preacher. And ain't your children. It ain't your grandparents. In fact, it's not even your Bible. I know I'm treading on dangerous ground. But it is a person. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's impossible to be saved and not have the Spirit of God within you. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, marvelous indeed, he says, His Spirit beareth witness with my Spirit that we are the sons of God. It's marvelous. The indwelling of the Spirit of God happened at that moment you were saved. Nah, not like apostolic times did you did not feel a rushing of a mighty wind coming within and cloven flames as it were. But the moment you got saved... You became a new creature. You have the righteousness of God on you, and in you, you have the fullness of the Godhead mightily through the person of the Spirit of God. Now, I made a very brash statement a moment ago, and I said that helper is more than just the Bible. It's greater. The reason it's greater is the Bible itself has very little efficacy in your ability to walk with God. In fact, aside from the indwelling of the Spirit of God, you have no hope of really having an understanding of the Word of God. Divine illumination comes through the Spirit of God. He is the comforter. He is the illuminator. He is the revealer. He is the earnest of your inheritance. Marvelous. I love that. Earnest, He's the down payment. I know that because He indwells me, 
that when I, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, am absent from the body, I'm going to be present with the Lord. Why? The very significance, the sealing in my life is predicated on the indwelling of the Spirit of God. I can't miss heaven because to miss heaven would have meant that the Spirit of God has forsaken me. I, little Sunday school boy, I'm, they had a, uh, uh, in a class and a teacher went over those words, you know, that the Lord said on the cross. I, I went over them for a whole summer, you know. Eli, Eli, lama sakbapani. And it sounds pretty. But if you read in that verse, the translation's given. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The words of Christ on the cross. And so I went around for a while, you know, lama sabatani, you know. Sunday school teacher said, why do you keep saying that? Well, I didn't want to tell him that it sounded cool. He said, you know what it means? And I told him, I said, yeah, I know what it means, what it means. And he goes, when did God ever forsake you? I began to think about it. But he wouldn't stop. He did what a good teacher did. He kept asking questions. When did he forsake you? Why did he forsake you? Brandon, how long did he forsake you? And you know, I'm overloaded with questions that now I cannot even remember what his first question was. And you know the answer to his questions? Not only did it never happen, it never will happen. He cannot deny himself. The moment of salvation, as I want to be clear, I'll be just simple for a moment, be direct. He's broken his promise to you if he forsakes you. That's an internal indwellment with God until at what time I see him. That's what John's talking about in 1 John. I know not what we shall be, but when we see him, we'll be like him. <clears throat> in the eternity future, I won't need the indwelling of the Spirit of God. You know why, class? Man, a lot of answers just came at me, but that's right. Well, number one, I won't be under the curse of sin anymore. I won't be dying. Number two, I won't have an Adamic sin nature in my life. I will not have the proclivity, I will not have the ability to be tempted, and I will not have the proclivity to sin. And number three, because of the first two, I'm going to rule and reign with Christ around his throne. And you can almost hear Handel warming up the organ for the last refrain forever and ever and ever. That's chapter 8. You come to chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's parenthetical deals with a relationship and the blessing that you and I have and how it intersects with the Jews that were given the initial promises of God. And then when you come to chapter 12, the gear has now changed. He is only talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelieving Jews, and he's certainly not talking to the world over as he was in the first three chapters. Chapter 12 is that first broad, direct address. It's almost as if in the beginning chapters you're standing before the God of all the world, the judge. And he's proclaimed, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And it's a sentence that overwhelms my soul. I cannot move past it. I cannot move forward. I cannot pay the debt. 
And yet the innocent Lamb of God comes in. And he says, but Christ commended his love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Will you receive the free gift? And my soul cried out in hopefulness, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And the judge now seeing that I'm exempt from judgment because the Lamb of God has paid for it, has now cautioned me and said, I sure hope the balance of your life you live for him. That's Romans 12. Seeing the mercies of God, beholding the full majesty of what God has delivered me for and how he has translated me from darkness in his marvelous life, my life in this time ought to be remarkably different than it was before Christ. And so we began this two weeks ago with a number of things. I think I probably have a dozen actions in which a believer ought to engage. Now time will not allow us to go too far back, but let me draw your attention to them quickly. Notice, if you will, one and two, the mercies of Christ, and be not conformed to this world, this age, if you will. That's the idea. What's present, not just the system, but also what's present in that system. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that acceptable, perfect will of God. The next series of verses deals with the marvelous grace that is given unto you. He's not talking about the Spirit of God. He's talking about the spiritual graces that God has given to you. And he lists some of them, and he concludes with letting him do them in verse number 8. Whatever that gift is or that great, if it's exhorting, then be exhorting. If he has given uh, you the grace of giving, then give with simplicity. That's the idea of liberality. Don't make a big deal about how much. Give with simplicity, great liberality. If you rule, have diligence. If you show mercy, man, do it with all cheerfulness. And these continue, these spiritual gifts, even to this day. And the idea really is this. The spiritual gift that God has given you, this is deep. For heaven's sake, use it. Use it. Use it. That's the emphasis here. It's the same emphasis that Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 10. Notice in verse number 3, But to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man a measure of faith, God's given use it for His glory and honor. And then he's going to transition in verse 9 and following into these some a dozen actions. I noticed the first of these was with these spiritual graces that you have and seeing that you've been redeemed. In seeing that you've been the recipients of the tender mercies of God, number one from two weeks ago was this, be loving, be loving. And he says to let your love be without dissimulation. If you write in your Bible, circle that word dissimulation, it really means this, without being two-faced. No hypocrisy. No hypocrisy. I'd really like to re-preach this a little bit, but so much of love is hypocrisy. Really, if you think about it. We have this idea of loving, but I'm not going to tell people I love them. I don't know what that's about. If you love them, you ought to tell them. But what if you don't love the people you go to church with? I'll answer that one too. Get right with God and do what you're supposed to do. It's simple. Let it be without dissimulation. I think this let love be without dissimulation brings another point in. It's a point of uncomfortability really, but it's this. If there's a problem between you and, your, you and your brother within the confines of the assembly, fix it. You don't need to talk to everybody else about it. That ain't fixing it. 
You don't need to put it on your social media pages. That ain't fixing it. Pray about it. And if it cannot be resolved through prayer alone, then you have an important biblical decree. And if you're not doing it, you're wrong. If you have an alt against your brother, what do you do? And the scripture is clear in Matthew. You go to him and you go to him alone. Don't get your posse, your cohort, your lawyer. Why? That's how you have love without dissimulation. And that's a key point. If you don't have love, then it really doesn't matter what spiritual gift you've got. First Corinthians put it this way. If I was, and we looked at this two weeks ago, right? If I bestow all of my wealth, give it to the poor, and have not charity, I'm become tinkling brass and a sounding noise. So, be loving. Number two, we dealt with this in verse number 10. He, he says, uh, be kindly affectionate one to another. And that kind of can fall with us in that, that, that idea of loving. But I want to deal with this last little part here. He says, preferring one another. So, in the scheme of why you're loving, have preference one for another. Be preferring. That word prefer, it means to lead the way. I've commented our, commended our ushers on this. But oh, how wonderful it is to have some of them open a door for you. I mean, I know that everybody here is strong enough to open the door themselves. I don't think that we have anybody that can't open the door themselves. I mean, there are limits on how much that door, uh, how many pounds of pressure that door has to be in order to freely open. There are rules about this. Then the reason it's that way is so that if someone is uh, disabled in one sense or another, they can still get out the door. So why do we have somebody to open the door? Some husbands do this for their wives, and they'll go and they're going somewhere, and you'll drop the wife off, maybe under the portico when it rains. I mean, you drive the car out there, and you've got to walk in the rain. Why do that? You're going to get wet. Why can't it be the other way around? Why can't you just both park and both get wet in a torrential rain? It has everything to do with showcasing preference with your love. If you truly love one another, you will prefer others above yourself. That's the idea, preferring one another. Notice, if you will, verse number 11, we move to the idea of being diligent, not slothful in business. As you read down through that, that word business has the idea, spudadzo is the word. It, it is elsewhere found as diligent. Study to show thyself approved unto God. Study, same as business, spudadzo here. Why? Because if you're going to be successful in any business, it won't be happenstance that takes diligence. That's the way it works. If you're going to be successful in the academic realm, at some point there's going to require diligence. Why? You're going to study to show thyself approved. And diligence, the hallmark of the Christian life. Do you remember 2 Peter? Giving all diligence add to your faith. By the way, you're not going to accidentally mature in Christ either. You're going to mature in Christ through diligence. Consistently learning the lessons, consistently applying Scripture. And so he reminds us, be diligent. Number four, as we continue down through here, he makes an interesting statement. He says to be fervent in spirit. 
word fervent has the idea to boil, but by continuance it has the idea of constantly abiding. They have an ever-vescent, ever-present spirit. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, God whom I serve in my spirit. Oh, that's the seed of my emotions. That's the seed of the decision of my wills. Oh, that my heart would boil towards the things of God. As many a believer that does not have a fervency in spirit about serving God. I think as I started a moment ago and I was encouraging you a little bit about congregational singing, oh, how our singing ought to be a token of our fervency in spirit of singing with a little bit of enthusiasm from our heart and from a conscious will that understands what God has done and what He's called us to be doing at this moment. So with all of this, the idea to be abiding fervently in Him. Number five, I believe this is the one we left off on a little bit ago. Well, being a servant. He says serving the Lord. Doilois is the word there, being a bondservant. You know, there's a lot could be said about service. In fact, the key to spiritual victory isn't getting from God in this life, it's giving all to Him. Is He enough? That's really the question we should ask in this life. We look for fulfillment. You'll hear folks talk about that. We want fulfillment. We want happiness. We want joy. Well, let me ask you a simple question. Is Christ enough? And how you answer that question will ultimately reveal your understanding of who He is. Paul put it this way. He said, we have all sufficiency in Christ. It's 2 Corinthians. He is the all-sufficient Savior. He's not just a sufficient sacrifice, for He is. He's not just a sufficient Savior. He is your sufficient Lord. He knoweth what you have need of before you even ask. He careth for you. He has a sovereign will for you. That if in this life there's some suffering, some unexpected suffering in life, and you look at them, He is sufficient for you. So that you can count those things that were counted loss, and you can look at them and say, because God is sufficient, they truly are gain in this life. That's the sufficiency of Christ I speak of. If Christ is truly sufficient in your life, then you can sacrifice through service to Him. That's often a great impediment in our life that keeps us from serving. We look at serving and say, man, I'll, you know, I, I, I've got other things to do in life. I don't, have a, I, just, I don't have enough time. Is Christ sufficient? He'll take care of all the rest. If Christ is truly sufficient, then He'll take care of things. Now that doesn't remove from us the biblical commands and responsibility to be laboring. I'm not saying that. But there's a place and a time that serving can be of great and should be of great importance in our life. It seems so often in the Christian life that we're looking for ways to do less in life. Be mindful of that hard expression. Because if you're looking to do less for God, that means there's something more important than God in your life. My, I'd hate to get to heaven, Brandon. Why didn't you, why didn't you do more? I gave you all that you needed to do. Well, oh, Lord, I... I just, that's one of the things that were important for me in my life. But then I hope he doesn't ask me the follow-up question like a good daddy would. A good daddy, when you answered your daddy's question, why didn't you do this? 
see, I had some other things that were important. You know what the next question your good daddy's going to ask you? What were they? But I don't want to answer that question. Because in light of an eternal all-knowing God, anything that follows that question is going to be frivolous. Serving the Lord. Notice if you hear, will, a sixth one. Rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. Circle that word rejoicing. It's a hilarious word, really. That's the root word. Helasmas. It's from which we get the English word hilarious. To rejoice means to have a genuine sense of joy, or you might even reference cheerfulness in life. That word joy throughout the New Testament is often the same word, has the idea of cheer, of rejoicing. In Colossians chapter 2, we're told to have that Paul had great joy in the saints' steadfastness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul to the Thessalonian believers said, Rejoice evermore. Revelations chapter 19 and verse number 7. John the Revelator, penned through inspiration, let us be glad and rejoice. And Paul writing the Corinthian church on the next installment, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Ready? The Lord loveth uh, the idea, a rejoicing giver. But here it's not about our giving. It's the idea of rejoicing in hope. Hope really is the theme of the book of Romans. There's grand hope. It starts off as hopelessly bleak and then matriculates into a hope that can be seen and expressed and received and that can establish my very soul in Christ. Hope. In chapter 4, it was Abraham who hoped against hope but believed in hope. In chapter 5, we have access by faith in this grace and we rejoice in hope. In chapter 4, we're told, or rather chapter 5 and verse 4, we're told that patience bringeth experience and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed. In chapter 8, verse 24, we're said that there's an element of hope regarding our salvation for we are saved by hope. In chapter 15 and verse 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And he concludes in verse number 13 of the same chapter, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. Hope. There's a consideration I'm to rejoice in hope. What is this hope? Well, this hope isn't wishful thinking. This hope is the expectation of the fulfillment of promises that God has made that concern me. Now let me ask you this. Is God slack concerning His promises? No. God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. But God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. What promise is there that God has broken? What, what, what way in which is there a dependency that you have on Christ that He will not fulfill? The answer to those questions is, well, absolutely. They're yea and all in Him. I am secure in Him. Then my friend, 
I'm to rejoice in that hope of who He is. I'm to rejoice in the promises of scriptures. I'm to rejoice in every stage of life, despite the trials and discomfort that might sometimes come, that I have hope in the tremendous promises of the Word of God. I have hope that He'll answer my prayer. Now I have, in one sense, hope my neighbor might rake my leaves. That'll be the day. That is not the same type of hope that the apostle's talking about. He says, you have an earnest expectation. There's some things, there's very few things, but there are some things in this life that we expect to happen. For instance, I don't know the exact time, but I don't know, maybe 10 minutes to 7 this morning, I don't know the exact time. I had an expectation that the sun was going to rise in the eastern sky. Did you have that expectation? Did you? How many of you ran out this morning just to see if the sun came up? How many of you ran out on your porch this morning and looked towards the west just in case it might have peaked that way today? You have such an expectation that the sun is going to rise that it's not something that ever really bothers your mind, is it? That's the hope you ought to have in Christ. An expectation of His fulfillment. And something that ought to bring great joy to my heart. I am to be rejoicing in the hope that He provides. Look, if you will, at the seventh one. Notice in verse number 12, patient in tribulation. That word tribulation there, thalipsis is the word. It has the idea of affliction and pressures of birds. It has the idea of that olive being pressed. And really when they put an olive through a pressing, it's pressed to smithereens. The juice, the pulp, it, when, when, it, when they finish with that third pressing of olives, it's discarded as waste. And yet that same idea, thalipsis, that same burden, that same affliction, that, that pressure of life is often used in regard of the child of God's life. I listen to these people that deny the coming of a future tribulation and this is the word they seize on. Aha, see there's tribulation in this life and there'll be a tribulation down the road. Listen, the tribulation of the world that is in the future and the tribulation of saints are two different things. God has so loved us that He has predestinated us. And Romans chapter 8 talks about that predestination often being in the forms of suffering. Why? It is the chiefest means that God uses to change and to conform His people to His image. When these sufferings come, I'm commanded here in this passage to be patient. That is, to stay under, to endure, to have some abiding power in them. What a sad thing to consider that a sovereign God has sent some level of trouble to our life as a means by which we are sharpened and shapen for His glory and image. And yet our prayer is perniciously, God, remove this suffering from me instead of, God, change me through this. The prayer of the apostle here is that they'll be persevering, that they'll stay under, that they'll abide. That's the very thing that your Lord did. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're to, commanded to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who endured the cross. In the very next verse, he says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. James, the half-brother of our Lord, spoke on it this light in James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And he even concludes in chapter 5 and verse 1, Behold, we count them happy which endure. 
I think one spiritual fruit that every child of God needs to develop is vitamin E. Spiritual endurance. But... We live in an age, and the age tells us this. If you don't like it, or if it ain't fun, you don't have to do it. That's what the age tells us. If your feelings are hurt, and we're not affirmed, then throw up your hands and quit, because whoever didn't affirm your feelings is wrong. That's what the world tells us. You want to know where that attitude is going to go? It's going to pass away one day. Child of God, you need to get past how you feel about things and get on to doing what you're supposed to do. Have some spiritual endurance. God wants that in your life. Look, troubles are going to come. It is not going to be an easy thing in this world to live for Christ. He has much said this. I think it's in chapter 16 of John. He said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's going to become some thalipsis, some burdens in this life. Take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9. Quit yourself like men and be strong. Some spiritual endurance. By the way, that's the mark. That is one of the marks. of professing Christendom in the end days. Do you remember 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4? Preach the word, Paul said to Timothy. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time shall... What will they do? They will not endure false doctrine. I'm sorry, they will not endure sound doctrine. But will what? Keep to themselves, that means stack them up like treasures. Heap to themselves, what? Itching ears. That's a mark of the end times. We've got a society that is setting a plate for that. Affirming, the affirming theology of the emergent churches has brought about some Christians that will never grow to maturity. Because we've got to be so soft-tongued. And I'm not talking about being kind. We've previously expressed this. But everything's got to walk on eggshells. There can be no absolutes. Everybody's got to have an understanding, you know. Kumbaya, hold hand. Have some spiritual endurance. Listen, growing in truth, God is sharpening us and it is not sometimes a pleasant process but the end it's a wonderful process so it admonishes us here number seven be persevering be persevering notice the eighth one if you will continue in prayer continuing instant in prayer i would give you an eighth one it would be this be devoted be devoted. Continuing instant, it has the idea of to be diligent with something, to be earnest towards something, to be strong towards something. By the way, if I'm going to have spiritual endurance in my life, 
this is certainly the next thing that's going to have to come, right? Continuing instant in prayer. I think there should just be some rules every Christian had in this life. Every Christian, when it comes to their devotions of life, ought to have a time allotted for this service. If you don't have a portion of the day set apart for your time to commune with God, the tendency will often be that you will not accomplish that purpose. I know where to pray without ceasing. I know that you can pray and the posture. You read through the New Testament, the Old Testament. It doesn't always have to be on your hands and knees. I understand all of this. But I'm saying if you don't dedicate a portion in which to commune with God, you're likely not going to accomplish that endeavor. So one of the rules, set apart of time. A second thing that a Christian must realize is it's not easy. In fact, you might even say that it's impossible to maintain a life of holiness and endurance before God without regular times of devotion to Him. A third thing that I would encourage a saint of God to do is always consider when you are the most freshest in which to engage in these. For most people, that's the morning. And set aside some of that first fruits of your day to commune with your God and to continue instant in prayer. This is the command of scriptures. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're commanded to watch into prayer. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. In Colossians chapter 4, I'm to continue in prayer. In Philippians chapter 4, to be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. In Ephesians 6 and verse number 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication. And in verse 19 he says, and pray for me that utterance might be given. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm to pray without ceasing. God's people should be known by the action of being committed, continually instant, in prayer. Notice the 13th thing, or rather verse number 13, a ninth thing, be helpful. Be helpful. I want to point out a couple of things about this next phrase. Distributing to the necessity of the saints. Distributing to the necessity of the saints. That's marvelous, really, to consider that. And then he goes on given to hospitality. Be helpful. What are the necessity of the saints? Well, the Scripture speaks of us having love to all men. But in the New Testament and Old Testament as well, there's a special emphasis set apart towards other believers. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, we're told, as you have therefore opportunity or occasion, let us do good to all men especially unto them who are of the household of faith. I have a responsibility to be helpful to the believers that I assemble with. That's who that household of faith is. Now I think about that for a moment. Why? Why? Distributing to the necessity. So there's a need of those saints that I know I have a responsibility to distribute. That has the idea of, I know it's very uncomfortable, but taking my wallet out and giving something. That's what he's talking about. Why? Let me give you about four reasons quickly. Number one, they are spiritually my brethren. They are spiritually my brethren. Matthew 25 and verse 40. I believe that's the passage where they paraded 
the Lord and they mentioned to him and he said, see, these are my brethren. They're saying, oh, he's from Galilee of the Nazarite. Oh, these are my brethren. I think of a second reason. There's many passages in Scripture that indicate that they are left for our care. James 1.27 says, you want to see pure religion undefiled, it's this, to care for the widows and the fatherless in their affliction. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, you know what, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, however, he's talking about caring for the widows that are, hold your place in Romans, the widows that are widows indeed in the assembly. You come to chapter number 6, listen to this. I want you to turn there and see it just for a moment. They're left to our care. I have a responsibility. Why? Because the possessions you have are ultimately not yours. God has made you a steward of them. Now notice this, if you will. Verse number 17, chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. He mentions charge. He's not talking about taking out your Visa or MasterCard. Charge. He's really commending you. Focus, preach, point, exhort them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Man, you got a couple dollars in your pocket. Isn't it easy to be high-minded? I can... Personally, I look back and I'm saying this humorously. But I remember when we first got married. My wife said, we need some... It came around Christmas time or whatever, an anniversary. She said, I think this year what I'd like to do is get some utensils or whatever. We didn't, we didn't have any of those, you know. And uh, got married in October, so this is very shortly after that. And I said, that's it. So I'm, that's what I'm going to get my wife. Kitchen utensils. So I'm very practical. This is what we're going to do. This is not great marital advice. I'm just telling you what I did. So I went in there and I became confronted, confronted with the very singular fact that kitchen utensils are expensive. So I left the store I was at and I went down to a dollar store and they're all cheap there. And I loaded up on them, you know. In fact, this past year, I, my, one of my daughters and myself, we went and bought mom a basket and I put only dollar store things in it including a dollar store, she, dollar store pizza slicer on it, you know. Just impress her with how much I love her, you know. <laughs> but you know, in reality, you know all that. But as you grow and your finances become what they may become, and you look at that, and to be honest, if you needed a new pizza cutter, you wouldn't go to Dollar General. You'd look for something that had quality to it. Most of us has ever shopped on Amazon. You scroll through a few things knowing the quality's cheap because you're looking for something that has some substance. Oh, how easy it is with wealth to be high-minded about things. He admonishes them, secondly, not to trust in uncertain riches. Don't get up caught thinking that all of your abundance will save you from the day of calamity. It's not. But in the living God who giveth us richly all things to joy, but rather that these individuals, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, Verse number 19, laying up, circle those words. It has the idea of treasuring up. In store for themselves a good foundation against a time to come that may lay hold on eternal life. I submit to you, number nine, be helpful. I have a responsibility to be looking out for my brethren. Yes, I'm to exhort them. Yes, they're going to have to do right. But when it comes to the brethren of faith, especially those that I definitively know, I need to have a responsibility of a certain attitude towards them. Another reason for this is there'll be times 
that needs within the assembly will arise. It certainly was true in the early church in Acts chapter 4 and verses 34 through 37 and you have individuals like Barnabas who having a piece of land sold it and brought and laid the money at the apostles' feet. Why? For the distribution to the saints that had needs. To care for the needs of those that he knew and to care for the needs of those that he didn't know even existed. He laid it for them for the apostles to distribute. Why? Because so often a child of God is going to go to the preacher and say, I got something I want you to pray about. But they ain't going to stand up in church and say that. That's the indication here. Number 10, the last part of that verse, given hospitality. By that I would say, be kind. Kindness really is a hallmark of the Christian life. In Ephesians chapter 4, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiven one another, even as God for Christ's sake. In Peter, he talks about that very sense. He says, be pitiful. The same idea of being kind one to another. And in this phrase, our kindness is manifested. Notice, if you will, in the end of verse number 13, given to hospitality. If you write in your Bibles that, that word given to hospitality, it has the idea of philo-zeno. You've heard of someone that was a xenophobic? Did you ever hear that in the news lately? They don't like, it's used today in the context they don't like uh, immigrants. That's what the word has. That's the word here. Entertaining of strangers. These are those outside. You're not a stranger if I know you, are you? It's those outside. But remember the emphasis is Galatians chapter 6 are those of that household of faith. Those that are Christ followers. That's my first obligation. Those within my assembly, uh, really my first obligation is my family. The second one is those are my assemblies. The third one is those Christians beyond the scope of my assembly. And last are those of this world's age. And I would note in the New Testament the number of times that churches had the opportunity to participate in aiding other believers for their basic necessity. This was Paul's command to 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1 about the gift for the church that were at Jerusalem. Many of the people at Corinth had no idea who the saints in Jerusalem, but yet they took up an offering to aid them. The same is true in Romans chapter 15, just a few pages over. In verse number 26, I'll read this to you. He says, For it hath pleased... In verse 25, he speaks about going to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which were at Jerusalem. You know what Paul's doing? He's met with them. They've put money in his hand. And now, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, you make sure the saints of Jerusalem get this. They weren't friends on social media. They didn't know. They just singularly heard that there was a saint somewhere that had a need. There was no GoFundMe account, and they gave towards it. This can go on and on. A hardness towards the needs of other saints is really a reflection of our love for God. And to the Corinthian church, Paul admonished them with this statement, Despise ye the house of God? Be helpful. Be kind. I'm going to finish, all right? Number 11, be consistent. We'll visit back again, verse number 14 and following, perhaps next week, but I want you to drop your eyes to verse 16. Be consistent. Be of the same mind one to another. Mine, 
This deals with the exercise of the will. Be careful to be consistent with all the saints of God. Note, be of the same mind one toward another. Be careful to be consistent with the saints of God. In an assembly not unlike this one, you have people that you're related to, you have people that you're friends with, you have people that you know and people that you know less. You have people that you like and you have people that you like less. (laughs) Be careful how you treat each other. God will hold us accountable for that. The Lord has a special disdain in His heart for those that are respecters of persons, particularly with inside the assembly. I got into a car the other day and uh, I listened to the Bible. It comes through the speakers, you know. And I want to read this to you. It's out of the book of Job. I want you to listen to it. Job 13. And verse number 9. It is good that you should search you out. Or as one man mocketh another, do you mock him? Verse 10, speaking of God. He will surely reprove you if you do secretly accept persons. You know what he's talking about? You create your favorite list. And we're good about that. I got my people I'm going to work with and I got my people I ain't going to work with. No, as the context of serving God, I ought to find it a great joy. It may be difficult. Use that as an opportunity to build some endurance in your life. To serve God with whom He's put in your path. God is not a respecter of persons. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, For God is no respecter of persons. James chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 and verse number 9, Be not a respecter of persons. Be like-minded, chapter 15 of Romans, toward one another according to Jesus Christ. Be consistent with how you care for saints. Yes, I understand our personalities and temperaments might draw us one way or another. But friend, do you have the mind of Christ? Then exercise your mind according to the truths of the Word of God and put up parameters that prevent you from being respecters one of another. Number 12, verse 16. I titled this one, Be Humble. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate, be not wise, and your own conceits. This has the idea of associating with all. Your conceits there in verse number 16, if you circle that, that deals promptly with your valuations of life. That's what he's talking about, be humble. There are some things that we just, I'm not going to get involved in. It's, it's not good enough for me. God has commanded that we honor all men. That's our valuation. I'm to love the brotherhood, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. And you think of Peter. Peter had great difficulties with his life. There were certain things in his life that prevented Peter from ministry. You remember Acts chapter 8, there was one, a, 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 a centurion, a member of the Italian band. His name was Cornelius. And God is working Cornelius' heart. But Cornelius was a Greek. He was a Gentile. And prior to Cornelius and Peter uh, meeting up, you find Peter and he has this vision that God has sent him about this descending of unclean things. And Peter cried out to God, Not so, my Lord. Peter was called up in some things that was going to prevent him from being an opportune minister of the Word of God. 
shortly thereafter, Cornelius comes and Peter receives him. And there are those around Peter that look at him and say, Ah, what are you doing? And he invoked the very commands of God. A level of humility. Of course, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter's at it again. He would eat with certain Gentiles but withdrew when the Hebrew believers walked in. In so much that Paul said, I withstood him to the face. And so great was their dissimulation. Do you remember what that word is? Their hypocrisy, their fakeness, that even Barnabas was carried away by it. We need to have humility in our life. In James chapter 4 and verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, He shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another. That's James 4, 10 and 11. In James 4 and verse 6, Remember this, God resisteth the proud. The reality is when the opportunity of ministry comes, to resist it because of our pride, to resist it because we're a respecter of persons, may mean that we have lost the opportunity to serve God in other capacities as well. Well, it's the tender mercies of God that calls us to be these things. If we will minister effectively before God, might we embrace by the tender of mercies of God these habits in our lives. Let's stand to our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.